This is the Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Base Catholic. The first part of this episode is a conversation that I had with my former Catholic missionary therapist friend Maria about a trend that she's seeing both at work and socially. Then I throw other relational trends I've noticed at her to see if there's an explanation. We discuss a new stat that came out that says more young men are single than young women. Although if you're in the Catholic circles, that might surprise you. But just ask yourself, how many single young men do you know that are actually Catholic? Might start to make sense. We talk about why we all look terrible nowadays, mostly because I have a theory that the powers that be want us to. And we discuss the Rosetta effect and why millennials need to develop practical ways to rebuild the community atmosphere that we've lost. Here is that segment. I'm here with my friend Maria Perone, who is a licensed Catholic therapist to speak anecdotally about what she's seeing. Maria, what's the biggest takeaway that you are seeing in terms of relational trends? Well, for starters, I am still supervised, so I'm not quite on my licensure yet. But secondly, whether I'm at work or just with my friends, I think I just noticed that a lot of people are afraid of singleness. They're afraid of being lonely. It's kind of a big trend. And also, a lot of people don't know how to have relationships, I think. But again, that's kind of an anecdotal point of view. I don't think I knew how to have a relationship. I think it just happened. And I don't think our culture also trains us to have relationships. And I think the phone's a huge component of that. And well, I think broken families too. At one point when I was in my early 20s, I thought to myself, how many really healthy marriages do I have as a model for me? And I I couldn't think of a lot. (laughs) I was talking about this with a friend and she said, she knew of one married couple in her family that she's like, they actually look like they like each other. They're still madly in love after being together forever. She's like, that's the only one I can tell that seems fun that I actually want to mm-hmm. emulate. And I think that's true. I think a lot of people can't pinpoint those actual real life examples where they're like, I want that. Right. Yeah. A couple of things that I had been noticing in friendships is I've had a lot of female friends over the years, surprisingly not close with their mothers which I guess I find really surprising because I'm very close with mine. Do you think that there's an explanation for that? Uh, Again, back to divorce. I don't know. Are your friends who aren't close to their mothers, are they in from stable home lives? Well, for example, one, her parents got divorced, but it was, it was odd. It was during college when the kids were older. So it wasn't when they were young and in the home. It was when they moved out. Yeah. The kids aren't stupid, right? I mean, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. They, They see things, whatever goes on at home growing up. Especially if there's issues between parents in a marriage, a mom or a dad could both like use their children as confidants, people that they rely on, and yes. that can end up pushing kids away later in life. You see moms do it a lot. Dads also will do it. Something could have happened even if it's not divorce, but just kind of, you know, uh-oh, not getting enough emotional support from your husband, so you get it from your kids. Yes, yes. Another trend that I've been noticing is, and I don't know if this is related to attachment disorders, but I have female friends who have been so used to unhealthy relationships or maybe guys that weren't really pursuing them, and they almost 
seem to be getting bored or losing interest with a guy that is pursuing. Is this due to an Mm -hmm. attachment disorder? Attachment is uh, a theory that really goes back to your attachment as a child, whether you were attuned to, things like that, and the way that you related to your parents and family growing up, uh, and how that really affected whether you're anxious or secure in your attachments as an adult. And it looks like a lot of people may not be securely attached. Now, if somebody has anxious attachment, let's say, uh, that doesn't mean that they had a horrible childhood. I'm not saying that. but And I'm also not an attachment therapist. I have just read about it a little bit. But I, I wouldn't call it an attachment disorder. It's more or less a theory of just about how people relate to each other. And there's maybe an optimal way that, that we can feel more secure in ourselves and therefore have healthier relationships. Do you think some people are naturally drawn to something that's a little bit more unstable or chaotic because it feels familiar? And I was trying to wonder, I was wondering if this also has something to do with, you know, I've never related to this, but maybe that being attracted to the bad boy archetype. I don't know if it's that too, where like, I, it's just weird to me that women would be attracted to guys that don't put in effort in relationships and pursue them. And yet when they finally come across that and this guy is everything that they want, I, it's almost like they want the drama or they get bored or they end up not wanting it. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm like, but he's everything that you actually want. I don't, it's, it's almost like there's a disconnect. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And you know what? I think, I think what you're referring to, I, I've never experienced this. I've never been attracted to, you know, men who are unkind towards me. I have always been more interested in, the, in, in respectful people. Um, I think a lot of women are with us on that, Jessica, but you know, there maybe is a pattern out there, maybe a stereotype, which I, frankly, I haven't even encountered that much even in my in my life generally. But I, I think if you're going to relate this to attachment disorder or, excuse me, attachment theory, there are people who are anxious about intimacy, even if it's emotional, and people who run away from it rather than where we're supposed to be, which is secure in it. And some women maybe in these scenarios you're talking about might be anxious and they might be grasping at what they are looking for, which is some level of emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. And And as this guy kind of plays games or pulls away and comes back, uh, she keeps grasping at it. It looks like in these scenarios, a woman could be anxious towards somebody who's rather avoidant. Interesting. So somebody who who is really just running away from emotional intimacy. And granted, I may be giving some of these guys credit. I don't know if they're just weak and broken uh, individuals as any of us are. Or if they have malicious intent, you know, this is all hypothetical. Earlier when I asked you the trend, you had talked about the overwhelming fear of loneliness and being single. What's an interesting stat Mm -hmm. that has come out is that more men are single than women. I know I've noticed Mm -hmm. that, you know, even just looking at Mm -hmm. family and, you know, trends that I've seen personally. I'm sure other people have as well. 60%, in fact, of young men, half of them are not even urgently looking for a relationship. And yet we often hear about the plight, wow. we often hear about the plights of the single woman or the complaints of conservative men about single women. Why do you think the only cultural images of single men that come to mind are either the eternal bachelors, total commitment phobe, aging <laughs> players, or the incel? It's like the normal it's like the normal guy looking for his wife is just nowhere to be found in culture. Oh my gosh. What a question. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I interestingly enough, and I, I, I was thinking about this um, just yesterday. In the secular world, I think it's really a matter of 
men might not want to date because it appears like marriage and commitment screws them over. I don't know. <laughs> it looks mm. that way in the secular world. And we know as Catholics that that's a bad take. I just think that a guy that resorts to pornography as if that's going to, what, fulfill a need, that that's a very low base need. I mean, I, yes. I, I think yes. even your typical secular guy would still prefer the relationship of a real woman. I'd like to think. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not. I don't know. You think women being financially independent is making them pickier when it comes to dating? And do you think that the sexual revolution is making it so that men no longer feel that urgency to lock someone down, commit, and get married? And it's... 100%. I, I brought, yeah. Well, I brought this up to somebody. I think it was J.P. DeGance on one of my earlier segments in an earlier episode. I said, neither sex wants the opposite sex to marry them for money or sex. So in a way, the fact that those are off the table, I'm like, okay, I could consider that a good. But I do think that those Mm -hmm. changes impact social dynamics because there's less of a basic need or desire to like urge you down that road where you do kind of have this option of being pickier. Right. I mean, we as women, we don't want to pick men because he makes a certain salary, but we do want to pick men who have a work ethic, who have a drive and who, who, who show that kind of masculinity. And I do think, okay, if if a woman who's not thinking as I'm thinking now has a good job and she doesn't need a man to pay for herself, she could actually end up settling for somebody who's actually below the even baseline standard, which is, does he have a work ethic? Does he have a plan? Can he provide? Things like that. And, and I think it goes the same as you're saying for men the other way around. Okay, they used to have to commit. They used to have to really discern, is this a woman worth marrying? Is she virtuous? Can she raise kids? All these really good things. And of course, You don't want to marry her for sex, but if you are getting sex regularly or you put pornography at your disposal, that really makes it so that maybe searching is too hard. Maybe it hurts. Maybe you get rejected. So it's easy to fall back and to say, you know what? I don't want to do this today. I don't want to try this. I talked about it a little bit with Jason Everett. In the manosphere, you hear these men who I think lack total self-awareness. They will make comments like, well, why would I settle for a six when I could have tens? And they're referring to pornography. And I just want to look at some of these people and say, okay, again, be self-aware. What are you, sir? And also, again, that's not a real woman. That's not a real relationship. That's, that's the fantasy in your head that doesn't actually exist in real life. I think a lot of times there's this notion that like the average man is getting left behind. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that the average man today, though, is comparable to the average man maybe two, three generations ago? I'm going to have to look into the data to see. But I have this theory that the powers that be are making us less attractive and fertile. And if you look, if you, no, seriously, but if you look at I'm the, sorry for laughing. <laughs> well, but no, but I, I really think everyone, I think we all look terrible. Like if you compare us to maybe your grandparents' generation, the way that they dressed, how fit they were eating just normal food, not having to constantly diet and work out, even just yeah. the genetics. Yeah. I really feel like everyone looked more masculine and feminine. And I think now we don't. So I think the average person just looks a lot worse than maybe what, average was in 1940. Do you have any suggestions on how we can better ourselves dealing with the Mm -hmm. cards that that were being dealt? Yeah, because we can't really control the time we're born in and the fact that our foods are pumped with hormones and whatnot. So what what are the things that someone can do? What can make a man more of a man? What can make a woman more of a woman? I I think you bring it up, the 1940s, who are your grandparents? Do you respect them? Do you love them? Uh, Do they model anything for you? 
and and like can you learn from them as you were talking i was thinking about my grandfather i thought what a guy he stormed normandy after the war he and his brother would go paint bridges with like those jobs with the new deal with uh, fdr and all that what made those men awesome i think was generally i think that they had something to live for and something to fight for and they gave themselves over to it and i i think that also makes it so that we as women have to be worth living for and fighting for why would anybody, male or female, push themselves to be the best of themselves when it's only for yourself? Mm. So number one, like find something to fight for and it better be good, not something of <laughs> virtue, something of God. <laughs> and otherwise, like, you know, take the Jordan Peterson advice, honestly, like pray daily, right? Work out, eat healthy, you know, live to your dignity. A couple of things that I was thinking, get off the apps. I just think that that is, I think it's killing culture. I also think it doesn't help men. It's not the way that they're going to win women over and woo them. I'm just utterly convinced of that. I also think just getting rid of your phone, getting in the habit of putting it away and being present with people in social situations, obviously stop watching porn and playing video games and being addicted to social media, read a book. You know, we feel the effects of the loneliness epidemic and the loss of community. And a lot of our grandparents were part of the immigrants that came to American cities, mostly in the North and the Midwest, who brought their culture and traditions to these neighborhoods. And that rich heritage is increasingly being washed away by each generation becoming more Americanized, which essentially Mm -hmm. just to me looks like we're being more atomized. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Rosetta effect was actually mentioned in a Verily magazine piece entitled What My Italian Family Taught Me About Community That Our World Could Use More Of Right Now. In the piece, the Mm -hmm. author notes about this phenomenon that was discovered by researchers in an Italian-American community in Pennsylvania between the years 1955 and 1965. They found that members of this community had lower mortality rates and were less likely to have heart disease than Americans which is hilarious Mm. considering what they were eating and how much they were eating. But they had high morale. (laughs) They had high morale and low stress, despite lots of wine, unfiltered cigars, and a high-carb diet. And I was thinking about how young people could recreate community and the obstacles that are kind of in the way of reimagining a new world, much like the old world. Even just having people over for dinner. I mean, the cost of food is insane. I don't know how anybody can host a dinner party in Biden's economy. Eating out, I think, is also (laughs) out because it's so expensive. And also, I just feel sick. And it's bad for you. It's so bad for you. the, The food being cooked in seed oils, I'm convinced if I go on a trip for a weekend, I leave feeling disgusting. Like, you'll hear people talk Mm -hmm. about how their trip to Europe, they were eating pasta every day and gelato and never felt better. They might even lose weight. Exactly. Exactly. I was also thinking about living near people or like just things that like, like a bowling league, like something that you are scheduled to do weekly that forces you to leave your place and connect with other people. That requires commitment. And I, I think that's a big point here. And I, as a millennial myself, also need to work on these kinds of commitments. So there's an attitude shift that I think most young people have to do. Secondly, as you were talking, I was really reflecting on, and I've given a lot of thought into this, was reflecting on the first things you were saying about our Italian-American society or or people like that. Think about my grandparents, my parents, the way they grew up, and they had great community because they not only lived near their siblings, but like (laughs) their cousins. I mean, it took a village to raise kids, but you had the village there, right? And um, granted, I'll I'll say this, my grandmother worked, my great-grandmother worked because they weren't wealthy. Yeah. So, and, And in those days, I mean, we like to talk about women working. That's really like 
a privileged thing. People who weren't privileged had to work regardless. So they worked, but they had community. Um, granted, it's not always good. Some of these family dynamics are toxic. That happens sometimes. But for the most part, you see a lot of people loved that life that they grew up in. And we have become very globalized. We've moved around. I live here. My siblings live there. Yeah. I don't know if we need to, like, create community by making as many friends as possible. Yes, you should make a few friends and be committed to them regularly. Yes, that's good, as you said before. But I think we need to go back to families living near each other. But as I say that, I recognize how hard that would be to do and how alienating that could be for a lot of people, such as I even think of my own circumstance. My mom lives here. My dad lived somewhere else. They were divorced. He was married to somebody else. You know, my mom lived with my stepdad before he passed away. And it's like, okay, I don't know if I want to live necessarily near any particular dynamic. So I could see how certain people, it's not just an easy thing to say, you know what, I'm just going to live near my whole family. Yeah. Because maybe your family in and of itself is not cohesive. So I think it actually starts with maybe creating it for ourselves with the families that we develop. You don't have to go off to college across the country. You actually don't even need to go to college necessarily. <laughs> I, I think maybe we should make it so that kids growing up don't feel like they have to just go out and make it on their own. Maybe they can live with their parents and save money until they're 25 or 26, right? I mean, you don't have to kick them out of the house. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the home should be a place that is, is exactly that. And there's not really an age limit on it. I think that our society is so anti-family. And I think you could easily say, well, yeah, it's a pro-choice society and it's pro-divorce and all this. But I think it goes even beyond that. We have become so anti-family that we want 18-year-olds to move far away and to be totally self-sufficient on their own, make their own community of people who are also figuring it out. I mean, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Everyone does it. And, and now we're all lonely. Uh, you know, who would have thought? We'll be back with the editor of Verily Magazine after this break. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. Did you ever get a magazine subscription as a kid or preteen? If you're a young woman, specifically a millennial, you might remember the days of getting J14, M, Tiger Beat, Cosmo Girl, and Seventeen in the mail. Taking the quizzes like the answer would redefine your life somehow and using the posters to decorate your room. Recently, my mom came across a stack of my old magazines in the basement full of early 2000s pop culture nostalgia. The fact that my first thought was, what a simpler, more innocent time either shows that I'm getting older or is just sad. Because it wasn't. In fact, it was quite scandalous. But the reality of life is that it has just gotten all the more absurd. I honestly feel bad for Gen Z. Luckily, I voiced my qualms about the values or lack of values that these publications promoted with friends as I was coming of age. We'd be reading something and they'd say through the landline on the phone, Jessica, what do you think of this? I wasn't easily influenced by fluff. But how do most young women fare out? Often they are products of the media they consume. Their fashion standards are set relationship outlooks met, and lifestyle trends are shaped by the celebrity culture of the day. So as grown women who don't want to read the tabloids or the feminist propaganda coming from Condé Nest with men on the covers pretending to be women, what brands can we trust? For the record, I am not a girl's girl. If you mention a woman's retreat, I am not going. I distinctly remember in college a lot of my female friends felt the same way I did, that anything catered to women seemed to lack substance and was often fluff 
centered around how beautiful you are as a creation of God, blah, blah, blah. And then we wonder why women are so obsessed with how they look. Maybe it's because it's the only compliment many of them receive, especially the most beautiful ones who end up being the most insecure girls you've ever met. Or the fact that it's the only social value that we place on women. That being said, I'm very much for let models be models. If everyone is a model, no one is a model. So there are three publications I can think of that represent alternative women's media, and Verily Magazine is the oldest among them. Now, the most interesting part of this interview, I thought, was when I asked Mary Rose, the editor-in-chief, what sets Verily apart from her competitors, such as EV Magazine. She said it's that they don't objectify women. They don't pose them suggestively. I feel like I would end up somewhere in the middle of these two. I'm definitely drawn to the more classic beauty standard. I've never really been a little house on the prairie type of woman. But there have been moments where I'm like, What is that? What are you doing? What is that? What are you doing? Ever meet those girls in the conservative movement where you're like, This is a bit much. It's a bit too mainstream. But it's a fine line. And I think we need to figure that out. with Mary Rose Somariba, editor-in-chief of the women's magazine Verily. Verily is back in print after 10 years, and at the end of the interview, Mary Rose will be giving out a promo code for your subscription, so make sure to listen for that. So I actually did a voiceover for the brand on one of their illustrated videos on YouTube a while back, and I ironically basically live down the street from Mary Rose. So I'm just going <laughs> to geek out for a second on the fact that the editor-in-chief of a global women's brand is based in Cleveland. Not New York, not L.A., but the land. I think that's pretty cool. And what's also pretty cool is that you're Catholic. Now, there's nothing explicitly religious in the issues, but there is an overall modest aesthetic. There are mentions of natural family planning, learning your fertility cycle, holding sex in a high regard, valuing community. Do you think that that ideological factor comes into play when deciding what editorial stance to take with pieces that are submitted? The faith has informed the values of Verily from the beginning because its founders were Catholic women in New York City, Kara and Janet. For me, I feel that charity to help others has influenced my entire career in women's media and in just in different publications I've worked. I worked at First Things and the New Atlantis and ethics. Really, ethics are always involved. <laughs> I've been more and more moving toward women's media. I worked at Natural womanhood and now it verily I've been at verily on and off over the 10 years of its existence and I really do think women have so many challenges in the modern day and so I just really feel a call to help and so for me it's really the charitable element and to lead women in a healthy direction a helpful direction and it just happens to be a true direction which is in line with many faith-based values of all sorts of traditions but certainly as well as the Catholic values. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, like, if a girl pitches a piece and it kind of goes against the values of the church, is that something that you guys consider publishing or is that kind of off the table and you're like, oh, you're better off sending to Vogue? It's a really good question. Like, we don't explicitly say anywhere. We are going to kick this piece to the curb if it doesn't fit in with Catholic values. Not all our contributors are Catholic. There are so many different ways to come at the truth. If there's an expert in a field with empirical data who shows that the hookup culture is hurting people or leading to sexual assault, pornography is hurting relationships, and these things you can come at from a theological background or you could come at from just reading stats. Something that I think that's really interesting is that the founder of Evie Magazine, another alternative women's magazine, Brittany Martinez, is also Catholic. Why do you mm -hmm. think Catholic women in mm -hmm. particular are taking it upon themselves to establish 
these alternative magazines. I mean, isn't Catholicism sexist? I thought that's what everyone <laughs> tended to make us believe. Yeah, we're so repressed. Oh, sheesh. You know, well, first of all, I just would say that that's so cool. I've heard about EB2. I mean, it's cool that there's like a trend for wanting better media. I know for me, it's just dissatisfaction with what's out there and wanting to produce something better and that uplifts women and equips them to be the best of who they are. And, um, you know, to feel they're clearing their head of all the crap in the world that <laughs> Sorry <Yeah>. for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're clearing their head of all the, the distractions that get in the way, perhaps, of the kind of life they want to live. Well, I remember this magazine was super popular during my college days. Girls from Liberty were definitely reading it, along with Relevant Magazine. Do you think the magazine has aged with the girls who first started consuming its content? Because I was flipping through it. It feels very mature to me, almost like the audience would be maybe like a 30, 40-something. <laughs> That's funny. Maybe. As we went back to print, I am a different editor-in-chief, so perhaps that's coming through a little bit, and I had, I did just turn 40. But um, You don't look at that. I, I, I looked at the photo. You're like, oh, this was me 10 years ago, and this is my 10-year-old daughter. And I'm like, you look the same. We actually have exciting news. In 2024, we are really hoping to start making a Verily Teen. As a nonprofit now, we're really just dependent on the support of our great donors. But we are really hoping to start working toward that because there's no reason we can't. We already have a great printer. We already have lots of great content and connections for writers. And we have a lot of lovely ladies contributing excellent stuff. I love so that So if idea. there's a huge need, and there is a huge need for younger women, then we want to meet it. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to ask what direction you hope to take the brand under your leadership. Is that obviously the next goal, is to kind of broaden the audience reach? Well, I think in, in a way, going to print was like a huge step in reaching a lot more women. And one of our biggest goals is to as a nonprofit, which we just became in this year, 2023, really just not worry as much about killing ourselves for ads or things like that and more trying to distribute it to those who need it the most. I was just at a conference and it was just a general women's conference and I told them about what we're about and so many women were starving for it. And I was like, oh, I just can't wait till we can just get this out in all those places where women are reading in hair salons, bookstores and newsstands and airports, because that's like the big way that we can change the culture is reaching women where they naturally want to read this stuff. And even women in the secular culture were very interested and bought fairly and picked up a copy, posed with a copy. We have it on our Instagram, like a bunch of women posing with our magazine, just who had never heard of us before. And from just the general, you know, mainstream. While you were speaking, you were talking about how people didn't know that we existed. I mean, this was, in my opinion, and I think it's true that this was the first alternative women's magazine that I remember. And then it did seem like there was kind of a hiatus. It kind of dialed down a little bit. I'm wondering if you notice the gap that other magazines have filled, like your competitors, EV Magazine, The Conservator. I noticed that Verily feels a little bit more like a journal in some ways, maybe with no specific photographed it girl on the cover. Is that intentional? Mm -hmm. And how would you say the brand is set apart from others? Because it seems like, you know, Conservator highlights some very, I don't know, in my opinion, questionable conservative women like Tommy Lauren. You know, does Verily plan to stay apolitical and kind of just deal on the cultural stuff? Well, you know, it's a great question. I think that we are trying to stay cultural and human. Like we'll have human interest stories that touch on things, all sorts of things affecting women today to cause our readers to think, but never like telling them what to think to help them to reflect on their own. And often they will be very thought provoking. And yeah, we try to keep a girlfriend, a girlfriend tone, and we definitely don't have any political identification. And as a nonprofit, 
definitely not. But when it comes to like the other things sprouting up, I think one thing that sets us apart, because we were founded with the no photoshopping of women, and we have a strong bent as well to never objectify women. We also show women of different sizes. So that means you're not going to see bikinis. You're not going to see a woman looking in a sort of seductive way. And I haven't looked too closely at all these other ones, but there have been some times I'm reminded, like, that's what still sets us apart. Did a fellowship on pornography and trafficking, and I've written quite a lot about the objectification of women. And I really do think at this point it is one of the biggest problems, like mm. facing women in the whole world and facing the world. We recently have a little tagline women are not objects to edit. And I like that because it's not just connecting with the popular no Photoshop element that I think maybe some other magazines also do now that Verily was the first, but the fact that we also never objectify, which is much rarer. What is the line between showcasing a woman's just natural beauty and objectifying her? Because I think that's so tricky. That's a great question. Well, what's great about Verily is that Janet was the one who was the style editor and she created a beautiful style guide. We needed to have that. We need to have, like, what do we visually depict? We, we strive to never even be close. Yeah, yeah. You, you, can't, you, you showcase women, but I feel like I don't remember, like, the cover girl. Like, it doesn't seem like it's focused on maybe the look of women as much, if that makes sense. I look at other magazines and I'm like, how do I say is this objectifying or not? I think... If it's got a sort of sexualizing vibe, it could be like a sort of seductive look or it could be their outfit is trying to bring attention to a certain body part rather than her as a full human. And and also her interconnection with the rest of her community, the people around her, her friends, her family. Our relationship content isn't just, you know, on dating. It also has family and friendship. We're just trying to consider women in their different stages of their journeys and meet them where they're at. Well, you guys recently did a photo shoot in Paris, which was so cool. What inspired that? So we went on a just a girl's trip, which was super rejuvenating at one store. I went to go check the clothing size, and it said, you are so much more than a size. And I was so struck by that because it just spoke to me. It just like, I'm going to see, does this fit me? And I'm postpartum mom here. <laughs> and, um, you know, because size matters at this point, like, will this fit me? And, um, and I'm looking at it, and it's speaking back to me. Like, no, you know, lady, you're more than a size. And I was like, whoa. So I asked the clerk, uh, what is this? Like, well, tell me what the philosophy is behind this and what's going on and what is the size, by the way. <laughs> but she was so great. She explained that this was Parisian designer Orly Cohen here in Paris. She wants the woman to not worry about their size, but to work with the representatives in the store who will help you find what's right for you. And so that was just mind-blowing. So then I thought, I want to interview this lady. I want to hear more about this. So in Paris on that little trip, they were super receptive. Like I found her on LinkedIn. I emailed her. She responded quickly. This was so impromptu. Was it wasn't a, like a planned work trip. That's crazy. No. No, this was a, a girl's trip, and it was a, the Holy Spirit, because Orly responded so quickly. And then what was super funny is that I was supposed to meet her in her office, but then her daughter got sick and was kept home from school. So I met her in her home, which was even cooler. I was like, I can't believe I'm in a French designer's house. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that was fantastic. And then I was really blown away. I was just thankful that God put me in that place because I was able to get a fantastic interview, which I highly recommend you guys read. So I thought, I really wish I could share her philosophy with other ladies. So then that's when at the end of last year, I said, we're going to have a raffle for if you subscribe to Verily by the end of the year before New Year's Eve, you'll be put in the raffle and we'll send you to Paris. And Heroines, the name of the store, or at least um, clothing store, 
agreed to give 500 euros of clothing to the winner. Wow. And so we decided we'd cover the flights, they'd cover the shopping spree, and together we'd offer a girl and her friend. So replicating this girl's trip, we did it, and it was so awesome. And that is covered in our summer issue. If I were you guys, I would keep an eye out because I think we're going to be announcing that we're going to do something like that again. One thing that I noticed flipping through the last three issues was that there seems to be a theme of disconnecting from technology. Do you anticipate print magazines making a comeback, especially when online magazines are now pushing for (laughs) subscriptions? Yeah, I certainly hope so because we just came out with print. I definitely think women in particular have a hunger for it. Women's magazines have always had the highest newsstand pickup rate. That doesn't necessarily translate to the suffering kind of circulation of many women's magazines, as we know. But the newsstand pickup rate is still the highest of all the types of magazines picked up. I think that we know there's certain places where they're more picked up, if you ask me. I think I always prefer paper for looking at fashion spreads. I just like to be able to like look at them on paper, hold them, and, and maybe flip back to them another time or rip it out and put it up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but other times, and invariably, we do have like aspects that you, you know, there's also a quote that's gorgeous. You could pull it out and frame it. We offered a digital subscription a little bit ago before the pandemic. Turns out a lot of people, if it's on the web, they think they can get it free. You know, people will spend more money (laughs) on a a New York Times like panel event than they will on the entire archive. And, um, And so I think that people just are used to getting stuff for free online. And so if they are paying, a lot of our folks in surveys kept saying they want, if they're paying, they want it to be in print. Well, what is the promo code so that listeners can subscribe to the quarterly magazine? Is that right? Yeah, it's quarterly based. I just decided to do based, B-A-S-E-D for your based Catholic listeners. If you want to get $10 off a subscription, we have two options on our site. VerilyMag.shop is the place where you can buy these and use this code. VerilyMag.shop, the V-E-R-I-L-Y-M-A-G.shop and that is where you can get a subscription to the quarterly. There's a quarterly by itself, and there's also a bonus, like a bundle, that has a quarterly plus a 10th anniversary issue to see some of what we've been up to the last 10 years, even before now. And both of those could use a promo code to save $10 on an annual subscription. That's all I have for you. Make sure to use the promo code BASED, B-A-S-E-D, for your $10 off magazine subscription to Verily. I want to thank my guests, Jordan for helping me with this week's show, Father Kevin Estabrook for being our show's chaplain, and you for listening. Make sure to tune in next week. Animal Based! If you're like Aria and need more Based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.